Christ this morning and hear from his word. And uh, as Garrett mentioned, and as we've mentioned the past couple weeks, October is Reformation Month. It's Reformation Month. That's what Curtis is talking about. It's Reformation Month. And, uh, you know, we, we all come from different backgrounds where we have more or less familiarity with the Protestant Reformation, right? Um, some of us are kind of aware that it's something that happened in history. Others of us uh, may know much more about it. Some of us may have never even heard of it before. Um, but October 31st marks the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And, and uh, you know, when we look at, at history at large, there are certain events that happen, right, throughout the years that have gone by, which change the world. Right, the invention of penicillin, for example, right, the discovery, we could say, of penicillin completely changed the world. Space travel, right, completely, discovery of electricity completely changed the world. But none of those discoveries would even have been made apart from the Reformation. You see, the Protestant Reformation, hands down, was one of the most significant events in the history of the Western world. It's because of the Reformation that you and I are sitting here in this room today. It's because of the Reformation that uh, all of us in this room know how to read anything at all, much less have a personal copy of the Bible in a language we can understand. It's because of the Reformation that industry, science, technology have made incredible leaps in the past 500 years. So the Reformation is very, very, very important. But as amazing as all of these things are, they are not the most significant aspect of the Reformation. The most important aspect of the Reformation is the theological legacy. Uh, encapsulated in what are called the five solas. Now, I know all of us, of course, studied Latin extensively in elementary school. And so, you know, the five solas, it's a Latin phrase. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, now here at FBC, of course, we are a Protestant church. We are self-conscious that we are Protestants. We trace our existence, our theological and, and doxological heritage, the way we worship, back to the Protestant Reformation. And we want to be conscious of that heritage because there is so much biblical fidelity and richness there. And while it's true that there are many different uh, Protestant denominations and, and Protestant churches, what unites genuine Protestant churches together are the five solas. Uh, the five solas are the heart of what it means to be a Protestant Christian. Now, that, that term Protestant comes from the history of the Reformation, of course, right? The, the protest of the reformers against the abuses and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and, and while they're, you know, again, right, we're not going to get too much into the political and social aspects of the Reformation, though those are very important, it was the doctrine and the practice that flowed out of that doctrine that was at the heart of the Reformation, both in its root and in its fruit. So when we reach a transition point in Matthew's Gospel, it's nice to take a couple weeks uh, and do a series on something else. And so when we got to the end of Matthew chapter 9, we hit that transition point. And so we're going to take a break from Matthew over the next five weeks to examine the five solas in light of the Reformation month. And, and my hope is not that you'll be a history nerd by the end of this, uh, this series. My hope is not that you'll be wearing a Martin Luther costume everywhere you go. Um, you know, my hope is, uh, of course, that you have a, a stronger understanding of what it means to be a Protestant Christian. 
and that you see why uh, there is a, again, biblical richness to that. Uh, but more importantly, that you would have a deeper understanding and love for the gospel of grace as it's laid out in the five solas. Right? That's the goal. As we look at this and as we touch on history, but as we spend hopefully more work in the scriptures, um, the goal is that our love for God, our gratefulness for the gospel, and our worship to him would be increased. Amen? Now, here's the reality. Right? This is important stuff to look at because if you're missing one of these five solas, if you're missing one of them, then you will either get the gospel wrong or you will have a completely wrong idea of what the Christian life should be and look like. These five solas are actually very, very important. Uh, the term sola means alone, right? As, as you, of course, remember from elementary school Latin, it means alone. These things um, stand by themselves. They need nothing else added to them. They need no addition from us. And the five solas really are a declaration, we could say, of what we believe. And here's what the five solas are. Sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, we are saved through faith alone. Solus Christus, we are saved by Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, we are saved to the glory of God alone. Now, if you're missing one of those, your trajectory in the Christian life will be very, very, very skewed. If you're missing Solus Christus, well, who else are you going to be saved by? If you're missing sola scriptura, how are you going to know what God's will is for you? If you're missing sola gratia, you're going to be trying to work your way to heaven. If you're missing soli deo gloria, you're going to think that the goal of the Christian life is something other than the glory of God. You're going to end off far in the weeds. So the five solas are vital for us today. Now, none of the reformers ever sit down and, and got their little sticky notepad and said, yeah, five, yeah, yeah, scriptura, gratia, fide, yeah, those, those five will work. That'll work. Right? They didn't sit down and, and, and write down this list of five solas. These are really a summary of what we see as we look back over the history of the Reformation and really um, the doctrines that the Reformers brought the attention of the church back to in Scripture. That's what these are, right? They're a summary here. They're what we should believe as Protestants, not for tradition's sake, but because they reflect what the Bible says. Right, so this morning we're going to be starting with the first sola, the first of five, sola scriptura. A phrase, again, that means Scripture alone is our authority. And as we look into Scripture itself, we're going to see that the Bible makes certain claims about itself that we must pay attention to. Now, this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do, right? Normally we take a passage, we go verse by verse down it. This morning's sermon, we're going to be drawing uh, from different parts of the Bible to get a comprehensive picture. Well, you know, as comprehensive as you can get in 45 minutes but a comprehensive picture of what the Bible says about itself. But before we do that, we, we need to understand a little bit about the role of Scripture and the church's view of Scripture prior to the Reformation. Right? We, we can't help but contrast the Protestant view of these things with the Catholic view because um, that's the historical concept these things are, are coming out of. And I know that uh, some of you come from a Catholic background, some of you uh, you know, have Catholic family and friends, so please know my heart. My intention is not to attack Catholics. It is not to misrepresent Catholics. Um, it's to be honest about what the Catholic Church historically taught and continues to teach so that we can understand why the Reformation was and continues to be necessary, and why we need to be conscious of these issues. Good? Okay. So prior to the Reformation, uh, the Roman Catholic Church reigned supreme. 
Right? There was one religious institution. That was it, right? And the Catholic Church taught that the scriptures were, were authoritative, but partially authoritative, right? Because there was actually another source of authority. It was the church itself. So there's the scriptures over here, but then there is the church and its traditions and its interpretations of scripture, which have just as much, if not more, authority than the scripture itself. One Catholic theologian states that God's truth and discipline are contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions. So the Catholic Church believed and still does uh, that the church had been given the authority by God to interpret the scriptures and, and that the Pope at certain times could speak with an authority that was equal to scripture itself. Now, the Council of Trent, which was held as a response to the Reformation in the 1500s, um, really reveals the Catholic position on these issues. And the Catholic of Trent actually basically condemns and sentences anybody to hell who would presume to interpret the sacred scriptures contrary to the sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold. So in essence, right, in, in 21st century language, you are accursed if you try to interpret the Bible in a way that the Catholic Church has not done. Right? So it's important to understand something else, though. The inspiration of Scripture was never a debated point. Right? The Reformers and uh, the Catholic Church were not arguing about whether Scripture came from God. Everybody agreed on that on paper. Right? The main point of the debate was, what kind of authority does Scripture have? What kind of authority does the Bible have? Again, the Catholic view would be that it has some authority, right? but that the Catholic Church also has authority to tell you what Scripture means and says, as well as to declare certain extra-biblical things as church dogma. In other words, that tradition has an equal authority to Scripture. But what this ultimately did and continues to do is to subjugate the authority of Scripture under the authority of the church. It's putting the authority of Scripture under the authority of the church. And for the Reformers, this was a major problem. This was a big issue. Not only did it result in all kinds of corruption in the Catholic Church, but it also resulted in a functional rejection of Scripture's authority. Um, Martin Luther was in a debate uh, with a man named Johann Eck. And Johann Eck, in this debate, which was really about Scripture, declares to Martin Luther, Scripture is not authoritative except by the authority of the church. Uh, in other words, for the Catholic Church, Scripture is authoritative because the church said so. So where is the Scripture really getting its authority from? The church. But for the Reformers, Scripture was authoritative because Scripture itself claimed to be the ultimate authority. There's a big difference in those views. And so this morning, we're going to look at two aspects of Scripture described in Scripture that should lead us to the same conclusion as the Reformers. The first thing Scripture says about itself is that it is authoritative in its author, its clarity, and over tradition. The second thing that Scripture says about itself that's relevant to sola scriptura is the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture alone is sufficient to save, instruct, and sanctify. Ultimately, we must hold to sola scriptura. That Scripture alone is our authority. If we are to truly know and understand and live in a way that reflects who God is and what He desires for us and from us. Let's pray as we prepare to do some work in God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the Bible, that it is a holy and precious gift.
that it is something you have given to us so that we might know you, that we might have all we need pertaining to life, godliness, and worship, practice. Lord, truly, we could not ask for anything more sufficient than your word. And so, Lord, as we come to this topic this morning, as we look at what your word says about itself, Father, would you renew our conviction in the authority of the scriptures? For, Lord, it's something we may confess with our tongues, but, Lord, in our lives, it often fails to, uh, to bear fruit, Lord. We lack consistency there at times. So, Lord, convict us. Remind us of the great treasure we have in your word. Uh, Lord, help me to work through these things and uh, uh, to preach upon this in a way that is helpful and clear for your people and a way that is honoring to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we'll look at the authority of Scripture. Now, when we talk about Scripture's authority, here's what we're talking about. We are talking about the Bible having the trustworthiness, power, and position to tell us what we should believe and do. That's what Scripture's authority is, that the Bible has the trustworthiness, power, and position to tell us what we should believe and do. But why? Where does Scripture's authority come from? After all, many people today say, why would I believe a bunch of uh, fairy tales written by you know, shepherds in the desert 2,000 years ago, right? Why do we believe the Bible's authoritative? On the outside, it looks like any other book, pages with words on them, but when we consider the three particular aspects that we will look at this morning regarding Scripture's claims for itself, we see that Scripture makes unique and striking claims about its own authority. That it has an authority that comes from its author, its clarity, and its statements about its relationship to human tradition. So we need to start with the author. Who is the author of Scripture? Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And we're going to try not to move too quickly through these passages this morning, but if you need a reference afterwards or need me to repeat anything afterwards or have any questions afterwards, please let me know. I'd be, I'd be happy to, uh, to fill in those, those blanks and those gaps for you. 2 Timothy 3.16. <coughs> a well-known verse on Scripture, but an important one. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. When we look at this well-known verse, we see that the Apostle Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that the ultimate author of Scripture is God Himself. He says that Scripture is breathed out by God. Every word breathed out by God. And while God used human instruments and authors, right? We're reading a letter from Paul here. The words on the pages are exactly as God desired them to be. Right? Paul's the one putting pen to paper. His personality's on display. But ultimately, these are God's words, exactly as he intends them. And Paul refers to Scripture here. This is a very black and white term. We see terms in Scripture like the Word of God. Sometimes that's a message. Sometimes that's something written. Scripture does not have that ambiguity. It's something written down on paper or papyrus or parchment, whatever. You get the point, right? By definition, the word is the written word of God. And Paul here is, is referring, of course, in his day to the Old Testament. That's all that they had in its completion. But the New Testament here is included in the concept. And in fact, the Apostle Peter describes Paul's letters as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.17. All Scripture, Paul says, comes from God. He's the ultimate author here. And because of that, 
Because of its divine author and origin, Scripture carries God's very authority. Right? Imagine you're, you're sitting there, you're relaxing, you're having a nice day. Some guy rides up on a horse and says, a letter from the king, right? And it's got certain instructions for you, commanding you to do X, Y, Z. That letter carries the very same authority as if the king were there himself telling you to do those things, right? Well, in the same way, because God is the author of Scripture, they are His words to us, Scripture carries God's authority. This book in front of us has as much authority as if God were to come down in our midst and speak to us today. Think about that for a moment. This is God's word. It carries God's authority. Uh, but notice here, does Paul include anything else in this, in this quality here? Does he say, anything else is breathed out by God? Does he say, anything else is profitable for these things? Does he say, anything else? No. Nothing regarding human traditions. Nothing regarding anything else being given to man. It is just Scripture that has these qualities here. It is Scripture and Scripture alone that's authored by God and carries His authority. And so we need to start there. That's fundamental. If God's not the author of Scripture, then why would we believe it? just a historical artifact at that point. But because God has spoken in his written word, this carries his very authority. And that's all well and good, right? We don't have any problem with that. But what about the question of interpreting God's word? Because that's kind of where it gets sticky. It's easy to say, yeah, this is, all, this is all God's word to us. But who gets to say what it really means? That's a pretty important question, right? And that was the crux of the issue in part during the Reformation. Does Scripture need the church to interpret it because it lacks clarity? Does, does Scripture need the church to interpret it because you and I as individuals are not able to do that? And the Reformers again here said, no. Part of Scripture's unique authority also comes from its clarity. Its clarity. Now turn with me to Psalm 19, 7 through 8. Psalm 19, 7 through 8. <clears throat> in this uh, psalm, David is really describing the two ways that God has revealed himself in creation and then in his special revelation, in the written word. Psalm 19, 7 through 8. <clears throat> Here's what David says, and, and look how he describes God's law, God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And, and truly, we could keep reading, but for the sake of time, we'll stop, we'll stop there. Now here, David is writing about the law of God, which of course was written down by Moses. David's writing about God's written law. This is referring to the character and quality of Scripture itself. The things that David says here are descriptive of Scripture. And one of the things that this text teaches us, these two verses in particular, is that Scripture is clear. Now, you might be saying, Dan, have you ever read the Minor Prophets? What do you mean Scripture's clear? You ever read those? You ever read Revelation? What do you mean Scripture's clear? I don't mean that every part of Scripture is equally easy to understand, but that in the words of the 1689 Baptist Confession, that those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned 
in a do use of ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. Okay, so in other words, let's, let's just kind of bring it up to modern English here. Scripture tells us what we need to know to be saved. You can have a PhD, you can be five years old, and you can understand the essential truths of Scripture. That's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. In other words, the things that are of first importance regarding salvation, God, His righteousness, are plainly stated in Scripture. Look how David describes God's Word here. How he describes Scripture. He, he, he says that the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple, that the commandment of the Lord enlightens the eyes. You see what Scripture actually does there. It's Scripture that makes wise the simple. A simple person can come to God's Word, read it, and become wiser just by reading the Bible. A person who uh, is, is lacking enlightenment spiritually in their eyes can come and read the Bible and have the eyes of their heart enlightened. Right? Scripture itself gives those with less understanding more understanding because it is clear enough to do so. Now, of course, there are obstacles to understanding Scripture on the human end. Right? If a person is not a Christian, if they uh, do not have God's Spirit, if they have not been born again, then they will not be able to grasp some things in Scripture. Right? On the other hand, uh, there's historical or cultural things that you and I may not understand. A phrase, an expression, historical events that we just don't quite get. That if we did understand those things, we would understand Scripture better. But again, those are not the faults of Scripture. Those are the faults with us. Right? They're, they're weaknesses that we have. They're not obstacles the church can remove by declaring an official interpretation of something. Uh, one Catholic theologian paints a picture of two rivers, both filled with precious gems, right? Rubies, emeralds, diamonds. Both rivers are, are God's truth. And on one river, he says, there's a boat that knows all the places to safely gather gems. And, and he says, this is, this is like uh, trusting the Catholic church and its interpretations. It's a, it's a guide, right? On the other river, there's no such guide, and while individuals may be able to glean a, a gem here or there, they don't know really where to get the good stuff, and they could even actually uh, you know, trip and fall and drown while they're in the river. It's dangerous for them to try to do that by themselves. And really, his point here is that, okay, yeah, there's all these, all these things that God has revealed, but you risk danger and missing out on so many things if you don't trust the interpretation of the Catholic Church. If you just try to read the Bible and understand it for yourself, you might get a thing here or there, but you're, you're risking, you know, ending off in, in, you know, false beliefs or what have you. And it's for this reason that this theologian declares, tradition to us is more clear and safe. Uh, during the Reformation, the church held to a view that individuals did not have the ability nor the right to interpret the Bible for themselves. They did not believe it was sufficiently clear. And, and, and to be fair, this concern's not 100% invalid, right? Because here's what can happen. Church can't tell me how to interpret the Bible, right? No one can. I, I have the ability to read the Bible for myself, which is true. But then what happens is we fall off the other side of the ditch and we say, my personal interpretation of Scripture is authoritative, right? We fall off the other side of the, the ditch and make ourselves little popes, right? Saying, I have the right to interpret Scripture as I want and you can't tell me any different. That's a problem too. That's a problem too. We don't want to fall off into that ditch either because that places the authority in the individual, right? Not, not the scripture. And the reformers had a perfect solution to this issue. Because scripture is clear, and, and because some parts are more clear than others, we should use 
Scripture to interpret Scripture. We should use the clear parts of Scripture to help us understand those parts which are less clear. Scripture is its own interpreter, not the church, not the individual. Scripture itself interprets Scripture. Right? If your interpretation of Scripture, or if you know, the Catholic Church's interpretation of Scripture contradicts other parts of Scripture, guess what? Those interpretations are wrong. Scripture itself sets the bounds for its own interpretation. Does that make sense? Interpret Scripture with Scripture. It's clear enough to do so. And again, we use those really clear passages to help us understand the ones that are less clear. But Scripture is the guide to its own interpretation. And we do see, of course, as we move to our final point here, that Scripture is very clear as well about its preeminent authority over any human tradition. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We've seen Scripture's claims regarding its own authority, its own clarity, and now we see its claims regarding its relationship to human tradition. Mark chapter 7 will be in verses 5 through 13. <clears throat> Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 13. Now, Jesus is going about his ministry, and uh, there are some Pharisees who approach Jesus. They see that he and his disciples are going to eat with hands that are unwashed. Right? And, and we see here in verse, uh, verse 4, well, verse 3 and verse 4, that this is a tradition of the elders to eat with washed hands. God never commanded it in his written word. He never said, thou shalt wash your hands before dinner, as much as we parents might want that to be a commandment in the Bible. It's not there. It's a tradition that humans had developed, and maybe for good reasons, but a tradition nonetheless. And Mark tells us in verse 4 that they had many other traditions. So not just hand washing, but there's all kinds of things, right? Washing your cups and pots and dining couches, all, the, all these things, right? And these traditions were held to very, very highly, so much so that the Pharisees think that it is important to go confront the disciples about why they're not washing their hands before dinner. These traditions were deeply held. And in fact, rabbinic Judaism, what we see here and what we will see in a minute, held to a very similar view to that of Roman Catholicism. Right? There, there were the scriptures, but in order to interpret the scriptures correctly, uh, the rabbinic Jews believed that there was this whole other set what they call the oral Torah, this whole other set of teaching that wasn't written down, but that it had been told to Moses on Mount Sinai anyway, and that had just been passed down from generation to generation, and that those things were helpful for understanding the written Torah. So they thought both those unwritten traditions and the written word were both from God. Again, very similar to the Catholic view, but how does Jesus respond here? Does Jesus say, you know what, you're right, we do need to follow those traditions, get in the washroom. He doesn't do that. Jesus asserts quite clearly that God is not only dishonored by teaching the traditions of men, but that this will actually make his word void. Look what Jesus says in response to them. Right? Jesus uh, replies to the Pharisees who are wondering why they don't obey this tradition. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to, in order to establish your 
tradition. Now, Jesus does not place tradition and Scripture next to each other. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what, they, they both work together, you need to pick one you know, to interpret the other. He doesn't do that. He actually puts them on polar opposites here. Now, that's not to say that tradition doesn't have a place. Right? Tradition can be good, it can be helpful, as long as it agrees with Scripture. Right? But on the other hand, when, when we're talking about traditionalism, right, where we're elevating tradition to the most important thing, that will always lead to a rejection of scriptural authority. For Jesus, what he makes clear here is the only authority needed by God's people was what? Scripture itself. Scripture itself. And for the Reformers, this was a central issue. This was a central issue. Martin Luther became so stirred up to nail the 95 Theses to the door of the church in, in Wittenberg in response to something called indulgences. You may or may not be familiar with that, but it was a Catholic tradition that said, hey, you can get your loved ones out of purgatory if you pay a little money and say a little prayer. You, you can get them to heaven quicker. But that's not in the Bible. And that stirred Martin Luther up because it was wrong. And sooner or later, the Reformation would focus on and reject any number of different Catholic teachings not found in Scripture, like the papacy, the mass, transubstantiation, acts of penance, the veneration of Mary, praying to the saints, so on and so forth. So for the Reformers and for us, the testimony of Scripture itself is that Scripture is the final authority. The declaration of the Pope or church councils don't have authority over Scripture. Neither do your or my private interpretations or feelings about what Scripture might be saying. Right? Instead, Scripture determines its own interpretation and attests to its own authority as coming from God, being clear in its character, and being the standard by which all things, including and especially human wisdom and tradition, are measured and examined. So our authority must be Scripture alone, sola scriptura. So let me, let me ask you, what is the highest authority in your life for knowing truth? What determines what you believe to be true? Is it your own opinions? Is it your emotions? Is it the swaying tide of social or cultural attitudes? Is it what you see online? Is it what you hear other people saying? Is it what you think God might be telling you? Or is it what he has clearly spoken in his word? Not just in confession, though, but in practice. It's very easy for us to say, yes, Scripture is my authority, and then live in such a way that completely contradicts that. Right? Now think about this for a minute, right? If this is God's authority, if it tells us what we need to know, just think in your moment, if you were to make a pie chart of how much time maybe you watch uh, talk shows, right, on cable TV, political talk shows, for example, or you know, watch videos on social media, whatever it is, right? How much time you put into those things or received input from those things versus how often you opened your Bible. For some of you, this morning is the one day a week that you crack the scriptures. What do you think is going to end up having more authority over you at the end of the day? Really, what are you putting yourself under as far as authority goes? It's just something to think about, right? If we really believe this is our authority, how much do we go to it to see what God says? on a daily basis. There's another aspect here to Scripture that reinforces this, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. After all, the Bible is authoritative but not sufficient. Then maybe we do need outside interpreters. 
right? Maybe we do need the church to tell us what it means after all. But what does the Bible itself claim regarding it? Let's see. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And, uh, you know, that's just a great passage of Scripture to have in your back pocket for a quick little statement about Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a great place to turn. Uh, so much packed into so little of a chunk. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. The sufficiency of Scripture. We'll go ahead and read starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? Now, Paul is writing to Timothy here, exhorting and encouraging him to continue believing what he's already been taught, what he already knows, and what he's learned from the sacred writings. Sacred writings, right? These are the scriptures. Again, it's the Old Testament Paul's talking about, but since the Old and New have the same author, same character, same authority. But in Paul's words here, specifically in 15 through 17, we see Paul tell Timothy that scripture is sufficient which is very important for sola scriptura, right? Here's what I mean by sufficient, that, that scripture is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. That scripture is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. In the words of the 1689. For these matters... Scripture is sufficient. It is all we need, right? Now, if you need to go get your car fixed, Scripture will not help you diagnose which part to uh, replace, right? That's not what Scripture is for. Scripture will not tell you how to put together a swing set in the backyard, okay? That's not the purpose of Scripture. But when it comes to those matters, God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, to be honest, those spheres are a lot bigger than we might think at first. They cover a lot more than we might realize. All we need is Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. Um, but here, too, on this topic of sufficiency, there is a major controversy and disagreement during the Reformation. The Catholic Church held that Scripture was partially sufficient, but not fully sufficient, because what else do you need to understand this? You need something else. You need the church, right? It is not fully sufficient. But as we look closely at Paul's words here, we find that Scripture makes a different claim for itself. First, we see the sufficiency of Scripture to save. In verse 15, Paul tells us, well, he tells Timothy, I suppose, but he tells us as well that it is the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the sacred writings that have the ability to do that. And if that was true with the Old Testament, how much more so with the full 66-book canon? But notice where Paul puts the location of this information that you and I must believe to be saved. The scriptures, the sacred writings. That's the only place he mentions. And that is where God has recorded the information you and I need about faith in Christ, repenting of our sin, Jesus' person and work, among so many other things. Paul does not identify this information or, or say it's stored up in the unwritten tradition or the authority of the early church. But with the scriptures... 
For the Apostle Paul, the Scripture was sufficient to save. If, if all that you had, right, you're, you're on a desert island and off, you know, and, and, and you're looking off in the distance and this crate comes floating up and it's full of Bibles, you know, if that's all you had regarding spiritual things, just you and a Bible on the beach, that is sufficient to save you. That is sufficient for God to redeem you through reading the gospel. Scripture is sufficient. You don't need a, a bishop to come there and tell you, hey, by the way, this is what that means. You don't need that. Paul, it makes it clear. Scripture itself is sufficient. And we see also that Scripture is sufficient to instruct. In verse 16, uh, Paul describes how Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And when I've talked about this verse with people who do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, whether you know, they might be Catholic, they might be Mormon, whatever it is, they point out, well, the word sufficiency doesn't actually appear here. It's not actually in the text, so you, you can't say that that's what this means. Um, but the picture of sufficiency absolutely does. If I said to you, hey, I've got this animal, it's got four paws, brown hair, long tail, and a tongue that hangs out of its mouth, and it goes bark, 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 you wouldn't go, you know what, I'm really having a hard time figuring out what that is. It's a dog, right? Obviously, it's a dog. Paul's doing the same thing here. He's painting a picture of sufficiency. He's not going to use the word, but he gives us all the components to see it there. Paul says that Scripture is profitable. That is useful. It has the purpose and ability to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. The Scriptures are said to be profitable for this. Paul doesn't include anything else. He doesn't say Scripture and is profitable. Scripture and is profitable. No, it is Scripture and it stands by itself as profitable. It is uniquely so. And there's other good Christian resources, right? I've quoted the 1689 Confession twice or three times or ten times in this sermon. I, I don't remember, right? That's good. It's helpful. We have a book of the month we do, right? Those things are helpful. They're good. But they are only profitable as long as they align with Scripture. And they place themselves under Scripture, not over it. Paul's abundantly clear. Scripture alone is profitable to instruct us, to correct us, to teach us, to reprove us, to train us. That's it. Not our own impressions, not what we think God might be saying to us in our hearts per se. Scripture alone is profitable for that. It's trustworthy. Trustworthy. That's fundamental to sola scriptura. Scripture is sufficient to instruct. And finally, Scripture is sufficient to sanctify. In other words, Scripture is sufficient to make us more like Christ. We see that in verse 17, that Scripture, what it does is we are instructed by it. Well, the end goal is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? This word complete means furnished or equipped with every necessary component for a task or purpose. I think about what happens right when we read and study the Scriptures and we hear them preached. God grows us. He changes us. He equips us. He sanctifies us. That we might not only know how he desires us to live, but that we might actually do it. Right? God doesn't want us to just hear Scripture. He wants us to do Scripture. And that is part of our sanctification of being made more like Christ. Uh, Paul's clear. Scripture makes us, as it's used by the Holy Spirit, spiritually complete. So that we might be equipped for every good work God desires for us. And again, here too, Paul makes no indication of anything outside of Scripture being needed for this purpose. Scripture is sufficient. 
to save, to instruct, to sanctify. Sola Scriptura. So we see that the claim Scripture itself makes is that Scripture is the highest authority for the believer since it comes from God. We see Scripture uh, claim that it is a plain book that can be understood by the simple and the wise alike. We see that Scripture places itself above tradition. We see Scripture claiming to be sufficient, containing all we need to know for God's glory, salvation, faith, and life. Nothing else is given that status. It's for these reasons that the Reformers advocated a return to Scripture as the primary and only source of authority over the church, over the believer. This is why, as a result of the Reformation, the preaching of the Word became the longest and most central part of the worship service because of Scripture's unique authority over the church, over the believer. It was the foundational doctrine in many ways that kicked off the Reformation. And it didn't just affect doctrine, but again, the practice of worship. But that was 500 years ago, right? We don't really need that anymore today, right? We live in America. I mean, it's not quite as important for us, is it? Do we still really need Sola Scriptura? Do we need to know that funny Latin phrase? Yeah, yeah, we do. The front line of today's battleground over the authority of Scripture is, is not with the Catholic Church, but with the supreme authority of me, my feelings, my opinion, my interpretation, uh, the culture's view on this, or right, particular uh, agendas, right, social justice, right, this or that or the other thing. What is our authority going to be? It's not uncommon today to hear phrases like, speak your truth, be true to yourself. Right? Follow your heart. The, the current cultural view of authority, and we must understand this because we are breathing in this cultural air and we don't even realize it. The current cultural view of authority is that it's no longer found in an objective source of truth, but in the subjective realm of experience. The individual has the authority, according to our world today. And that's true in the secular culture. We don't have so much of a hard time picking that out. But guess what? It's flooded into the church as well. Again, we breathe that air. It's like the story of the two fish, right? There's these two young fish. They pass by this older fish. And, uh, you know, the older fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the younger fish go, what's water, right? They don't even realize what they're swimming in and breathing in and taking in, right? We often don't realize it as well. We need to be consciously aware of this doctrine, sola scriptura. Far too many Christians place a higher emphasis on their feelings or what they think God is telling them subjectively instead of the clearly written, perpetually relevant, divinely authoritative Word of God. So friends, regardless of how much you like history, Sola Scriptura is a vital doctrine for us that comes right out of Scripture itself. It anchors us to the authoritative source of truth that God has given us. It teaches us about God and what He, not human tradition, desires us to do. It reminds us that Scripture is the primary means God uses in our lives to instruct us and to change us and to save us. And when we consider the goodness and power and authority of Scripture, why would we settle for anything less? Why would we settle for anything less? Can you think of the chaos that would ensue if I went to my five-year-old son and said, hey, you know what? I think you're going to be the authority now. 
right? Be chaotic. But yet we do that all the time. We put ourselves under the authority sometimes of things that are, you know, akin to that. Why would we settle for anything less than the richness of God's word? As David says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And really it is because of sola scriptura that we arrive at a proper understanding of faith, of grace, of Christ, of God's glory. We can't know anything about these concepts apart from the authoritative voice of Scripture. So Scripture is the ultimate light and guide for us. And may we always cling to it as the supreme authority for knowing God and His will. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you have blessed us beyond measure in your written word. And Lord, in our day of, of uh, technology and wonderful advances and all these different things, Lord, and we thank you for those things. The most powerful thing in the world are the words of Scripture. Because they are your words and you use them in amazing ways. Lord, you used the words of Scripture 500 years ago to completely change the world. And Lord, how much we neglect Scripture at times because we think it's boring, because it's inconvenient, because there's things we'd rather do. Forgive us, Lord. May we treat Scripture as the authority we confess it to be. May we prize it and treasure it and hear it. And in hearing it, Lord, receiving it, and in receiving it, do it. Recognizing its authority and sufficiency for us for our salvation, for life and godliness and worship. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us lacking anything that we need in these matters. Uh, Lord, that you, you have given us an abundant feast. And truly, we could never even get to the bottom of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which guides us. And uh, Lord, which teaches us from Scripture. And again, we thank you for Scripture itself. A trustworthy guide to its own interpretation. Lord, grow us in our love, our understanding, our submission to your word, that we may truly believe sola scriptura. We give you all glory and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Benediction for you as you go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.